The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. presentation and you know this is the best looking men's choir I've ever seen and God will forgive me for lying <laughs> ladies we missed you you're a part of it but men you did a great job and Sam thank you for filling in for Paula and we thank you for being here with us this morning if you have your Bible with you open it with us to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John. And in just a moment, we want to look at this particular passage. While you, before we look at it, though, I think Brother Bob, Bob Pittman's ghost is still around here. During the military several years ago, Uh, since Brother Mike has been here 35 years, would you cast the devil out of this thing? <laughs> if it had not happened to uh, Bob Pittman, I would think he was me. But it's obviously the devil. So, What I was saying before the devil interrupted us was, during world, uh, several years ago in the military personnel, a survey was done as to the favorite passage of Bi in the Bible of those who were leading in the uh, military services and exceeding even the 23rd Psalm or 1 Corinthians 13 was John 14. Maybe it's one of your favorite passages. Certainly it's one that we've used many times when times of bereavement have come, but it's a great passage before we read it, let me tell you, whether to just drop our minds down in it, what's going on in this when Jesus says these words. One of the unusual things about the Gospel of John is that it take, he gives almost half of his Gospel to one week in the life of Jesus. From chapter 12 on to through chapter 21, one week. Now, if you've been writing a biography of Jesus, 33 years, most of us would not have given that much time to just one week out of 33 years, but the Holy Spirit led John to do that. And so the reason being, it's what we sometimes call Passion Week, Holy Week. It's the last seven or eight days in his life. And Jesus has just told the disciples in chapters 12 and 13 that he's going to Jerusalem and is going to die. They're devastated. They've left everything to follow him. And now, at a young man, he's going to die. And in an effort to give them instruction as to how they can make it without him, he begins to teach them in John 14, 15, and 16. And we're looking at the first paragraph of those instructions. So look, if you will, 
as Jesus himself is speaking, trying to comfort his disciples, and he says to them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and whither I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? And Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you've ever seen a Billy Graham crusade on television or in person all over the world, you're aware of the fact that our text here, John 14, 6, has been the theme verse of these crusades around the world where literally thousands of people have come to know Christ. And that one verse, John 14, 6, makes it extremely clear that the only way of salvation is through the person of Jesus Christ. No other way. It's very clear here. Now, oftentimes people accuse us of being narrow-minded because we emphasize the uniqueness, the one, the exclusiveness of Jesus is the only way to be saved. People say it this way. Well, I believe we're all going to heaven. We're just going different ways. There's only one thing wrong with that. It's wrong. You cannot make right out of it. It is absolutely wrong. Now, hear me carefully. We need to understand that oftentimes in our efforts to communicate to people, we think we're communicating, but we're not. And one of the greatest dangers we preachers have is a failure to communicate. Sometimes we use good words, and yet people don't understand what we mean by what we're saying. It's kind of like the Texas guy I heard about a few days ago that came out from Texas over here to South Alabama, and he's riding around down there, and he sees this old farmer standing out on the side of the road wiping his brow, and he drives up in his Cadillac with a convertible with a thing down and his big wide-brim hat on. He said, Say, partner, says, what size spread you got here? Well, quite honestly, the Alabama farmer thought he was talking about something you put on your bed. You know, that's what a spread is. That wasn't what he meant at all. He said, what, what, what do you mean? He said, I mean, how big a place have you got here? Oh, he said, you mean my farm. He said, well, he said, tell you. He said, you see that clump of trees up there? Said, that's my north line. Said, that barbed wire fence down there? Said, that's my south line. Said, they go all the way down to that gravel road and up to the top of the hill back here. Said, 27 acres. It's all mine. It's all paid for. As modestly as he could, the Texan guy acknowledged it. So to be nice, the Alabama farmer said, well, what size place you got out in Texas? He said, well, to be honest with you, sir, I can get in my pickup truck at sunrise and drive all day long and never get across my ranch. Alabama farmer said, well, I declare. He said, I had a pickup like that one time myself. <laughs> now, 
that's a silly story to illustrate. Sometimes we think we're communicating and we're not. Now, it doesn't make any difference about the size of your ranch, but it does make a difference when we come to talking about the way to heaven. And at that point, Jesus made it absolutely clear. Now, sometimes we don't do that. Even we preachers don't do that. We talk in language that is good words, even Bible words, but the ordinary person doesn't have any idea what we mean by them. Good words like justification, sanctification, glorification, reconciliation, propitiation, atonement, much less the millennium and the Armageddon and all those words. <coughs> the ordinary person doesn't know what we mean by that. In fact, a lot of the folks in the church don't know what we mean by that. But not just these big words. The simple word, S-A-L-V-A-T-I-O-N, Suppose you had to divorce yourself of all your religious vocabulary, all your erudition and your academic attainments, and you had to talk in language anybody could understand to tell them how to go to heaven when they die. Now, let me say to you with all my heart, the older I get, the more convinced I am, the average ordinary person outside your church and mine today who's not a Christian does not already know how to be saved. If you question that with a church on every corner almost, just ask them. Take a survey of your own tomorrow. What would you say a person has to do to, and use the words whether it's to go to heaven when you die, to be saved, to be forgiven of your sins, to know God, whatever words you use. What do you have to do to go to heaven when you die? And you get answers like, well, be sincere. Go to church. Do the best you can. Live right. Live with the Ten Commandments. Now, every one of those are good, but absolutely none of those is how anyone is ever forgiven of their sin. You know that, and I know that, but they don't know that. Somehow, they've grown up with a culture that our salvation is dependent upon what I do, and that's the last thing <coughs> from the truth. Now, the ordinary person doesn't understand. Suppose you are going to explain to a child or to an adult what salvation is, what would you say? Let me do the best I can, leaving off all these big words and in one sentence give you what I would say salvation is. I, when I teach preachers at the at divinity school, I suggest to them, you don't have a good sermon unless you can digest it all down into one basic thesis sentence. I know sometime your life is to give you the sentence and be done with it. Well, here's the sentence now. If you go to sleep or you get tuned out on me, here it is in a nutshell. If I had to say in language anybody could understand with no big words, salvation is a personal relationship one has with God through Jesus Christ that involves one way, two sides, and three stages. Now let me say it one more time. Every part of this is important. It is a personal relationship one has with God through Christ that involves one way, two sides, and three stages. During the revival, Brother Bob preached the gospel to us. Some of you may have gotten concerned about your relationship to Christ. You may have asked yourself, 
Am I really saved? Well, this message this morning is a sequel to that. It's not to make you doubt your salvation because if you are a saved person, this will confirm it. If you're not, it will make it clear how anyone, anywhere can be saved. Now, look at what we're talking about. It is a personal relationship you must have. You cannot be saved because your granddaddy was a Baptist preacher or because your mom and daddy took you to church. That's all well and good, but it's something that must happen to you personally. God doesn't have any grandchildren, only children. (coughs) And we need to keep in mind today, this is something that I must have. It is a personal experience. Beyond that, you can only have a personal experience with a person. You cannot have it with a baptistry, as thrilling as it is when we see people baptized like we've seen here in the last several services. I thank God for it. But that's, the baptistry is not a person. It's a thing. You can only have a personal relationship with another person. And then the other part of this, it's a personal relationship that you have. I don't use the word experience. Some people say, well, have you had a salvation experience? Well, you know, an experience can be something that happened years ago that has no relation to your life whatsoever today. I want to tell you, years ago when I first met my wife, I had an experience. I did. It was a good experience. But you know something? It's still going on today, 57 years later. What is it? Not an experience isolated from today. It's an ongoing relationship. And that's the way it is with you and Jesus Christ. It's not a once upon a time I got saved and I'm going to heaven when I die. Listen, dear friend, that is not what the Bible means by salvation. It's a personal relationship that you must have, not an experience, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, there's where we come to the text. It is one way, two sides, and three stages. The one way Jesus made expressly clear when he answered Thomas's question, he said, I, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, listen carefully. Many pseudo-intellectuals today will indict conservative evangelical Christians with being narrow-minded, with being, well, you believe you're the only ones going to heaven. I remember I was in a, a Southern Baptist convention years ago in a hotel, and all these Baptists had come to town, and there was two ladies in front of me, and they were irritated with having to stand in line to get checked in the hotel. And uh, one of them said, well, who are all these people? And one of them said, it's those narrow-minded Baptists. You know, they think they're the only ones going to heaven. I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, ma'am, I'm more narrow-minded than that. I don't even believe all of us going to make it. <laughs> now, I'm joking you a little bit. Dear friend, it's okay to be narrow-minded when you're talking about the one and only way to God. Now, hear me carefully. I call this statement sometime the most dogmatic statement in the Bible. Now, there's a place for tolerance. We're taught, rightly so, be tolerant to people of other political persuasions, people of other races, people of other denominations. 
people that are not just like you and me. I'll let ask you a little question in parentheses. Has it ever crossed your mind or asked the question, can, is it possible for God to ever bless somebody with whom you disagree? You'll go home and think about that. We need to be tolerant to people of other persuasions. But there is such a thing as the sin of tolerance. Why? Because of this simple statement. Truth, absolute truth is always dogmatic. Anywhere, any truth I've ever experienced in studying, it's always dogmatic. Let me show you what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I learned in the first grade, C-A-T spells what? Okay. You know what? It doesn't sound like that. It ought to be K-A-T. Any way you look at it, it sounds like it's K-A-T. K-A-T is always wrong. There's one way the spelling teacher will approve how to spell cat. It's got to be C-A-T or it's wrong. Now, some kids say, well, I thought all kind of ways were okay to spell cat. No, there's one way to do it. Any other way is wrong. Arithmetic. Two plus two equal four. It doesn't make any difference. A kid puts down two plus two equals 22. It's always what? Wrong. Why? Because there's a mathematical truth that the one answer to two plus two is always four. <clears throat> In history, I learned Julius Caesar was murdered on the Ides of March. You remember that from history. Now, the smart Alex student may say, I don't believe in dogmatic truth. I'm going to put out he died of a coronary thrombosis on the 16th day of March, and he spells coronary right and thrombosis right, but the answer is always wrong. Why? There's one answer to how Caesar and when Caesar died. He was murdered on the 15th day of March. Go to the chemistry room. I learned that H2SO4 makes sulfuric acid. That doesn't make any difference if I say, well, I believe it sounds to me like it ought to be hydrogen peroxide. It's always wrong. Now, I could go on and on, and you could add to this list. Truth, absolute truth, is always dogmatic. Now, the pseudo-intellectuals would have subscribed to everything I've just said, but when you come to the spiritual realm, you've got to be so broad-minded your brains fall out, and everybody's going to heaven the same way. We're just going different ways. Friend, don't ever believe that. If you're going to heaven, and I hope you are, you're going the one way we've all gone. That's through the person of Jesus Christ. Absolute spiritual truth says <coughs> there's only one way anyone can ever be right with God. Now, there are a lot of things in the Bible I don't understand. A lot of passages, I'm not sure what they mean. When I get to heaven, I'm going to find out. I don't remember, I don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Maybe you do. Maybe you think Paul did. I doubt that. But when we get to heaven, we'll find out. But when it comes to the matter of salvation, there's no room for any differences whatsoever. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's the most fundamental question you will ever deal with. You remember when that tragic airliner was shot down here just a while back over Russia? Nearly 300 people died. Some of them one country, some from another. Some were rich, some were poor, some were educated, some were not. You know when that happened? 
The only thing that really made any difference was, did they know God? That's it. All the other things were secondary. Did they know God? And Jesus said, I am the way. So therefore, you can't leave First Baptist Pelham this morning and say, well, I really wasn't sure how to be saved. Jesus makes it very clear, and I'm doing the best I can to just simply elucidate that. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. So salvation's a personal relationship one has with God through Christ. It involves one way, but it does involve two sides. Listen again to the Bible. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you could quote from memory, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That eliminates all those things that people say about doing the best you can, live with the Ten Commandments, go to church, pay your tithes, work hard. All of those are works, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's by grace through faith. But here again, we're committing somewhat our initial error What does grace mean? What does faith mean? So take just a moment and understand in your mind what we're talking about. I learned as a little boy the acrostic that gave me the best definition of grace I've ever known, and there are many ways to be more fancy than this. But someone said, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's it. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. Grace is God giving to you and me what we do not deserve. Grace is God's act of saving you and me. I didn't deserve to be saved. God didn't need to do it. Sometimes people say God needs something. Listen, dear friend, God doesn't need anything. He wouldn't be God if he needed anything. He's perfect God. He didn't save you because he needed to. He saved you because he loved you and his grace. Really, if you want to see what grace is all about, look at the cross where the Bible says God the Father made God the Son to be sin for us. Who, talking about Jesus, knew no sin. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Translated that saying at the cross, God took your sin and my sin, laid it upon Jesus, and he died, just like we've sung about this morning. And he took his goodness and his righteousness and laid it upon you and me. And when we die, we can go to heaven. That's grace. I didn't earn it. I didn't pay for it. I wasn't good enough for it. You weren't. But that's God doing for you what you can't do for yourself. It's the grace of God. But that's the event of history. That event of history has to become an experience of the human heart. And so there's where faith comes in. F-A-I-T-H. By grace through faith, we're saved. Now, when I say grace, I don't mean this is 50% the salvation is 50% the act of God, 50% the act of man. It's not. It's 100% the act of God. But when God shows his grace to us, you're not saved by bragging on Jesus. Now listen to me carefully. You're not saved by looking and saying, oh, how wonderful, how much he loved us. What a great way he died. He lived a sinless life. 
I believe in the virgin birth. Listen, that's all well and good. That's not what saves. The event of history must become an experience of the human heart. And that's where we, what we call F-A-I-T-H. But I hear again. If you ask me the one word in the New Testament that has been more misunderstood than any other word, I would say it's the simple word faith. Yeah, you say, Brother Carter, you know better than that. You know anybody knows what faith is. I say, well, all right, suppose you tell me. Well, you say, preacher, faith is just believing in God. Anybody knows that. But I'd be careful. If that's all there is to faith, that same Bible says the devils in hell believe in God and they tremble. Are you going to say they're going to go to heaven when they die? I don't think so. No. Faith is not just believing in God. If that were true, everybody except an atheist is going to heaven, and I don't think there's any rational person that would agree with that. Faith is not just believing in God. You say, well, what is it? Well, according to the Bible, Romans 10 verse 9 says that if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be S-A-V-E-D. Say it out loud. One more time. That's what it says. How? Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. There's the two sides of faith. Inward trust, outward confession. It's something we do in our heart, and it's something we do outwardly. Now, inward trust is faith. Outward confession is just what it is, this confession. It's very much analogous to getting married. I hold in my hand right here a wedding band. I've been wearing it for 57 years. It doesn't make me a husband. If I put it on you, you wouldn't be my wife's husband. She wouldn't have you. <laughs> I'm kidding you. <laughs> this ring does not make me a husband. It is an outward sign anybody can see of an inward commitment I made long time ago. Now, let me illustrate it in language you can understand. Let's imagine a beautiful romantic night out here. I think we had a super moon last night. Let's suppose in that bright super moon in August the 9th, 2014, here's an old boy and girl, and they've been dating for maybe a year, and we'll just call him John. I'm going to call him Mary, just like the pianist here, the preacher's wife. That's a good name. John and Mary have been dating, and John sits here in this romantic setting and says, Mary... You're the most beautiful person I've ever known. I've enjoyed being with you more than I've ever enjoyed being with anybody. Mary, I have feelings towards you. I've never felt towards anybody. Mary, I love you with all my heart. Mary, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Do you believe me? Yes, John, I believe you. Mary, will you marry me? No! Now, the old girl believed everything he said. But when it came to the matter of what? Commitment. She was not willing to do it. So John passes off the scene. Mary's still there. Jim comes along. And they begin dating. And they date for about a year and come back to the same spot, same moon, same girl, different boy. And Jim says almost that same syrupy speech. You know, Mary, I love you. I'd rather be with you than anybody in all the world. Mary, I want to spend my life with you. Mary, will you marry me? Yes, Jim, I will. I want to ask you, what's the difference? 
The old girl had no reason to question John. He believed that she believed everything he said, but she was not willing to commit to him. But with Jim, there was a willingness not only to believe in the head, but to commit with the heart till death would ever part them. Now you say, preacher, what are you saying? I'm saying, dear friend, <clears throat> two people can sit in the same church and hear the same preacher preach out of the same Bible and both believe everything that he says is true. One can leave lost going to hell. One can leave saved going to heaven. And the difference is commitment, inward trust. But then there's the other side of it, that if you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. <clears throat> Go back to that couple. Jim, Mary says to Jim, yes, Jim, I will. And Jim says, oh, well, let's, let's go. Let, let, I want to get you the biggest diamond ring I can get and put it on you. Oh, no, 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 Jim. You know, we don't, we don't want to tell anybody about this. You say, preacher, you don't know what you're talking about. She said, right, they're still open. Let's go down there and look at them tonight. And the next thing you know, she shows up around here like these young ladies do. And on that left hand, got that ring finger, there's a beautiful ring. What is it? It's an outward sign that in her heart she's made a commitment to Jim. And my dear friend, that's somewhat analogous to what I'm asking you to do this morning. We can't see what's in your heart. Only God can. And that's what really counts. And there's where the inward trust comes. And there's where the commitment comes. But if I have genuinely committed myself inwardly to him, I will confess him before men. You say, preacher, you're making join the church part of salvation. No, 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 no. I'm simply telling you what Jesus said. Whosoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before the Father. Whoever denies me, him will I deny before the Father. In a moment, we're going to give the invitation. I'm going to ask you, maybe you thought about it during the revival. Maybe you came close to doing it. But you say, Charles, I'm ready this morning. I want to come. Inward trust outward confession. That is the way we confess. Sometimes it's privately in prayer. Sometimes it's publicly when people walk the aisle, as you've seen people do during this week. And sometimes it's finally in baptism, as we've seen this morning. This is not what makes us a Christian. This is something we do because we have become a Christian and we want to be obedient to the Lord. And that leads us to the last thing. Quickly. Salvation is a personal relationship you have with God through Christ that involves one way, two sides, but three stages. When you stop and think about it, everything in your life occurs in one of three places. Either in your past, it will happen in your future, or it's happening in your present. When you take those three, you've encompassed everything about you, and salvation Bible salvation changes your past. Every sin you've ever committed is forgiven by God, never to be held against you anymore. I'd be saved just on the basis of that, but God doesn't just stop there. And he says, where I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I come again, I'll receive you to myself. That's the future. That too is taken care of. Paul says in Romans 13, 11, now today is our salvation nearer to heaven than when we first believed in the past. Salvation takes care of the past. 
Salvation takes care of the future. But listen, if I have been saved and I shall be saved, I will live like a saved person today or I will be miserable. You say, preacher, you're making it sound like I got to do something. No, I'm I'm saying, if I have been saved and I've had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it will show itself in the present. No question. Jesus said, John 13, 35, by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one towards another. Don't tell me that you love Jesus and you don't ever go to church. You just came in this morning. We're glad you're here. But next Sunday, you may be on the river, you may be at the lake, you may be on a, traveling somewhere. Now, some people just got the idea they fall in love with Jesus. It has nothing to do with the here and now. I'm going to heaven when I die. Listen, <clears throat> nowhere does the Bible teach that kind of salvation. If I've been saved in the past by faith and I'm going to be saved in the future by hope, I will live like a saved person in the present or I'll be uncomfortable. Now, I'm not saying we've got to be perfect, but I am saying we've got to be perfectly committed. When I became a husband to my wife years ago, I pledged my loyalty and faithfulness to her, and it has been that way ever since. But she'll be here with us next Sunday. You can ask her. I hate to disappoint you. I'm not a perfect husband by any means. Don't laugh at me. You're not either. Every one of this choir was sinners saved by grace, and I am one. You're one, but I'm joking you a bit to make the point. We're not perfect, but we're perfectly committed. I want to ask you, if you died today, are you ready to go to heaven? Have you been the one way, the way of Jesus Christ? Have you exercised inward trust and outward confession based on the grace of God? Has your future past been changed? Your future is going to be changed? Are you living like a changed person now? If not, I want you to do it today. Let's bow together for just a moment. And with our heads bowed and eyes closed, as you evaluate your relationship with God. You're the only one who really knows what it is. If I have communicated today, then you're responsible for what you've heard. If I haven't communicated, then I'm responsible and I apologize. But if you say, Charles, I understand what it is. I heard Brother Bob preach this week and he made it so clear. And I want today to say, finally to the Lord, I'm willing to come. You may be here, you're a Christian, but your church membership is not here at First Baptist Pelham. I know they don't have a pastor, but I promise you, in due time, they're going to get a man of God who believes the Bible, who loves Jesus, and who's going to love this church. So you don't have to wait for him to come to say, I want to be a part of this church family. You can lead the way. You can step out on the first note of our invitation to him in just a moment. But if you've never accepted Christ, and you would say this morning, I see what you're saying. I want to go the one way. Maybe the boys and girls here, you want to come and you stick your hand into your mom or dad's and say, would you go with me? Or if you're standing by a Christian friend, they'll be glad to come with you this morning. I promise you they will do it.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for grace. Thank you for faith that we can exercise. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you that it can be clear. We can know that we have been saved. In your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand together with us? As we sing the first stanza, the staff will be right here to welcome you. You just move out and come right now, right this moment. We'll meet you right here. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.